lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, both now and forever. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you all for being here. Um, excited to have Lisa with us uh, today. Um, just in the way of quick review, um, we want to continue to raise awareness, uh, cultivate compassion, and train volunteers, and hopefully mobilize more people here in Nashville because there's a number of refugees being resettled. And of course, Otter Creek, you've heard us talk about it, but we've established two what's called good neighbor teams. And so we've, uh, in a sense, adopted a family, uh, one from Iraq and one from Syria, and, and families and members are pulling alongside of those folks. Uh, just befriending them, just helping them figure out where to go, what to do, um, how to use uh, the post office system, and how to, how to shop at the grocery store, and uh, how to find a used car, and how to get a laptop, and all those things that you and I just know where to go and what to do, uh, they need help with that. And uh, the Syrian family in particular is dealing with a pretty significant language barrier. Uh, fortunately, the, the family from Iraq uh, you know, speaks well, or at least the husband speaks well, and, um, and, the, and the wife is quickly learning. But yeah, they're, they're just overcoming obstacles, and they just need a friend. So you can imagine how welcome it would be uh, to come to a strange city or a new land and have language barriers, and to just have friendly faces there to kind of help you through that process. And what, a, what an encouragement that would be. So uh, I hope that in the end, we can mobilize more teams like that, and I'd love for you all to be a part of that. But we, uh, we hope to uh, train more of those volunteers uh, to do that. I will say Roger and I are, are dropping back and punting a little bit. Our syllabus as of today is beginning to change. World Relief is really overwhelmed and short staff. They just lost a key volunteer coordinator. And so I'm not totally sure what it's going to look like about uh, our, our goals to, to train at the end of this class. So stay tuned for more details. We'll figure that out. But we've been kind of going back and forth with them this week, trying to figure out what that looks like. I'm not sure they're going to be able to get here. It definitely won't be three Sundays like we'd hoped, but we'll figure that out. Uh, but today we have Lisa Sherman, Nicholas, who is, is here to talk specifically about immigration policy. And so we've spent a lot of this class talking about our Christian response uh, to the refugee crisis, how you can become involved, how you can... Um, speak with your friends, uh, believers, followers of Jesus, and, and not followers of Jesus, because there's really two different types of conversations that can go on in your, in your world, right? There's people who can kind of relate with you and, and sort of relate to the words of Jesus and sort of our mandate of, of becoming involved and welcoming the stranger, but there's also this whole other conversation that can go on in your circles with people who are, who are, are thinking more uh, as an American and, and those conversations are valid and important. And you can go a, as a, a believer and you can kind of help cut through that propaganda or the misconceptions and work with them um, on, that, on that sort of public discourse level uh, if you and I have the right facts. And I think that, that Lisa is an expert at that. She can kind of help us cut through all the misconceptions and all the propaganda and help us organize and help us speak in that public arena uh, as, as believers. And so I'm excited to have her. I think uh, uh, she's going to have a lot of information about what she does day to day with an organization called Turk. And I'm going to let her explain uh, what they do. But so excited that you're here and her folks are here. Um, so let's, I won't say any more about Matthew 25 other than isn't it encouraging to know that the person we're following 
the guy who's discipled us, lists right up there with thirsty and hungry and in prison and orphan and widows, it's the stranger. And this is, um, this is the Greek word xenos. This is uh, right here at the heart of what God uh, wants for his people. It's compassion for the stranger. And so this mandate that, that Matthew Sorens talks about, is, it's, a, it's a battle cry that we really don't have to argue about or wonder about or try to analyze. It's really clear for the Jesus disciple uh, that this is a part of who we are. This is our calling in, in this world. And so amidst a, a crazy political uh, arena of, of, of the United States in 2016, I love the simplicity and the call and just going back to these concrete words that are issued by um, Jesus that's talked about here in Matthew 25. Last week we had Siloam. I didn't send out class notes this week because it was really just an interview format, but if you want to go to SiloamHealth.org and learn more about what they, did, what they do, uh, Laura Camp and her friend Issa were here last week, did an awesome job, and what a great organization. And then uh, Shinwar, uh, we, we you know, had a lot of good feedback from that um, discussion, and, and he had a great time with his family, and we just appreciated them. But uh, today's Lisa, and uh, that's her husband, Ryan, and their daughter, Maya. And how old is she now? Two. Two? Uh, what was she? I, I'm trying to figure out this costume. She's a peacock. A peacock. Oh, okay. <laughs> peacock. Very colorful. Uh, but yeah, talk to us about Turk. Just give us an overview of the mission and the goals of, of Turk here in Nashville. Yeah. So Turk is the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition. We're a grassroots statewide organization. Um, we started about 11 or 13 years ago um, when there was a success in getting driver's license for undocumented individuals here in Tennessee. And so all of the service providing organizations um, who you know, give services to immigrants and refugees kind of got together and thought this would be a great um, policy initiative to work towards. And so that's how Turk was born. Um, we represent 50 organizations across the state. We have individual members as well. Um, and really our mission is to empower immigrants and refugees to be able to defend their rights, um, but to also more fully integrate into our um, communities. Um, and so what I do as the policy manager is I work a lot with um, analyzing legislation, either administrative, state, um, city council bills, or at the federal level connecting with our national partners to make sure that policies are inclusive um, of our, the communities that we serve. So I spend a lot of time talking to elected officials, uh, which can be quite a challenge, um, and also working directly with the communities affected to help them understand um, the proposals that are forward and, and help our organizers mobilize those people to take action. So you're the policy manager, and so you're, you're for your organization here in Nashville, that office in Nashville, you're, you're advising them, but what are the other roles look like? What are those people doing? What does that organization look like? So we have organizers who work in specific communities to try and get those communities to um, be more active, to become spokespeople, to meet with legislators, to um, you know go to churches and give talks and share their story. We always tell them that the most powerful tool they have is their story. Um, and so we are always trying to get those communities organized um, to be able to mobilize them when, when needed. We also do provide some services um, that help immigrants and refugees better integrate. So we do naturalization workshops, 
Um, up until recently, we were doing DACA workshops, which I can explain what DACA is a little bit later, but it's um, Deferred Action for Early Childhood Arrivals, which was President Obama's 2012 executive action granting uh, protection from deportation for millions of undocumented youth across the country. Um, and so we were helping them take advantage of that program and get their work permits and their social security numbers and their driver's license. Um, we also do um, civic engagement, so we register immigrant and refugee voters and help them get to the polls and understand um, our complicated political system and how to get involved. Yeah, so it's a not-for-profit organization, mm -hmm. I assume. Yeah. Uh, how, how does that, what does that look like? Or are there, I guess, fundraisers on staff, people, people who are doing fundraising right. primarily? Um, you know, who would be behind this organization? Yeah. What, what's fueling it? So our members do pay fees, um, which is one way. We have fundraisers like the International Food Crawl, which I know Roger came to, um, which we explored all the ethnic restaurants down Nolensville Road, um, and we're able to get a chance to interact with the owners. Um, we do have grants as well from different funders um, across the state. I'm not so involved in the fundraising. I find it a little boring, so I don't really pay attention. Yeah. Um, so I, don't, I can't even really tell you who funds us. Um, yeah. But yeah, so we have a lot of, we don't get any government funding. Okay, that was my next question. So there, there's no relationship necessarily to the federal government or even the state government? Uh, no, and, yeah. so whereas the refugee resettlement agencies do get federal funding as part of the administration of the resettlement program, we don't actually um, resettle refugees, and so we don't get any of that funding. Yeah, I think the most striking thing is I read about Turk and learned more about Turk is that you're working to organize immigrants. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a, a unique thing about it. And I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of, of a person migrating to the United States. And then there's this group who's welcoming, welcoming me and they're, they're super excited that I'm here. And then we say, okay, now let's help you get organized. So mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that philosophy of why, why them? Why, why encourage them to take up this yeah. cause? So I think it's really important for people who are marginalized or oppressed or, or oppressed to be empowered. I think often our instinct is to um, like lead for them. And I think that marginalized and oppressed communities know better what their needs are and what um, what they what they need. And so I think it's really important to have their voice and for them to be the leaders. It also helps them to more fully participate in our communities um, so that they're not just continue, so they don't continue to be vulnerable, but that they're able to um, feel empowered and make change. Yeah, I think that's the fascinating part of y'all's story. So, you know, if, if you read Lisa's uh, bio sort of information, I mean, she's got an amazing resume. I'll, I'll brag on that. It's really impressive, and she's done a lot of different things. And uh, you, you've got this background in children in armed conflict. So I'd love to hear just about how you came to this organization, how long you've been there personally, what about your, you know, your background and training has, has sort of prepared you for this? Yeah. So for the last few years, I've been working in international human rights and international armed conflict. And so sort of on the other end of the refugee and immigrant experience is what makes people flee? Why do they leave their home? Um, so I think kind of understanding from the beginning to the end why people flee what's going on in their home country and their home situation 
to the resettlement process and how do you integrate those people into our communities. Um, I mean, quite honestly, moving back to Nashville wasn't something I was looking forward to. I loved my job in international human rights, but we had a baby in New York. Um, and it just wasn't um, tenable to continue to live there. And so I was a little bit nervous when I moved back about how I would use that experience locally and whether I would find work that met my skills and my interests and my passions. Um, and luckily I did what everyone does, which is network and sort of learn who's on the ground. And I met Turk through a friend um, and the more I learned about them, the more I realized they were sort of a good fit for me. And it took a while for me to really f still feel like I was in the right place. Um, but now it's been a year since I've been there and reflecting on my experience there, I think I'm much more effective in this environment than I was working in international human rights because I was a semi-white Western person going into West Africa and sort of trying to tell all the West Africans what's the best way to improve your country and so I was an outsider and I wasn't ever going to stay there long term and then you have that battle of like you know western and um, non-western and sort of you know what what benefit do I really bring um, it's much more important for human rights activists in those countries to raise up and have the space to be able to do the work and so here I feel actually that my role is better because this is my community where I identify um, this is, um, you know, even though I'm still kind of a foreigner because I didn't really grow up in Nashville, I have more identity with the community here and I'm going to stay here more long term. And so I think for me, that's been a good realization that I think I'm in a good place where I have the best ability to affect change. Yeah. And mom and dad love hearing you say that you're going <laughs> to stay, stay here a long time. <laughs> um, so in this class, we've talked a good bit about the, the things driving uh, anti-refugee sentiment in our culture, and uh, we spent a couple weeks at least talking about the various things that play into that as a culture. But talk to us about just what you have seen is driving anti-refugee sentiment in legislation. Yeah. I'd love to hear just what you see across our state that's really pushing that. So I think there's a few things. One, I think we can't ignore sort of the historical legacy that we have as a country and as a state and our deep um, roots in slavery and Jim Crow laws, um, racism, xenophobia. I think throughout history, even though we are a country that is built on immigration, we've always reacted to demographic shifts in a not so welcoming way. So if you think about Catholics, um, the Irish, the Chinese throughout history, um, the Italians and different communities, they've always um, experienced that anti-immigrant sentiment. So it's nothing really new. Um, there's always this battle between nativists who believe that this country belongs to certain people. Um, and so here in Tennessee, really the anti-refugee sentiment is rooted in all of that, I think. Um, but in historically, more recently, it's been much more directed at the Hispanic population and undocumented individuals. It wasn't about until 2011 where we really saw anti-refugee policies being introduced into the Tennessee legislature. Um, and I think that has to do a little bit with the rapid demographic shift. So we have around 330,000 immigrants across the state. 
which is 5% of the population, but we actually have the fastest growing immigrant population in the country. So no other state is changing as fast as we are. And I think with that, there's a natural anxiety and fears that people feel, that receiving communities feel when they um, hear Spanish all of a sudden in the grocery store or they see a mosque being built in their community that wasn't there before. I think people um, you know, react with, with, I think, how we all do when there's change that doesn't look like us. Um, but unfortunately, rather than addressing those concerns and informing receiving communities about the benefits of demographic shift and what immigrants and refugees bring, there are national organizations as well as elected officials who are manipulating and sort of bringing out the worst instincts in people and using that for political gain. Um, and so we started to see anti-refugee legislation being introduced. Um, it was really fringe and um, not really in the mainstream, but after the attacks in Paris in November, we definitely saw it become more mainstream and a lot of elected officials who were more moderate and welcoming started to realize that this um, fear was a winning, a winning mechanism to get their constituents on board. Um, so, yeah, so we're in a really tough, tough time right now. Yeah. So we, in our class, we shared this, what you shared with me. Mm -hmm. It's called the Contributions of New Americans in Tennessee. So I'd love for you to share uh, why welcoming refugees is such a positive thing for the state. And I'll, I'll preface that by saying, one thing we talked about in this class is and I, and I mentioned this in my introduction, is there's this one conversation with disciples, right? And, and sort of we can, we can relate about scriptures and the teachings of Jesus. And then there's this other conversation that we, that we use that information and that, and that worldview and paradigm to inform our public discourse. You know, how do you talk to somebody who's just a regular Tennessean who faces these kind of natural fears? Um, and this is such a great tool because on that level of, of public discourse, you can say, but, but did you know that um, you know, immigrants are actually contributing quite a bit to the state and have for decades? Uh, so talk just more broadly about why it's such a positive thing and, and how we as Jesus disciples can, um, can use those facts to kind of cut through some of those fears. Yeah. So I think first I'll start with the economic argument is that immigrants and refugees actually contribute quite a lot to our state. Um, if you read this report, there's all kinds of statistics about their spending power, how much they pay in taxes, um, and, and you know how many businesses they start. So 18% of the Fortune 500 companies in Tennessee are actually started by immigrants or their children. Um, they create jobs, they start businesses at higher rates than the native populations. Um, and you know, right now, as I'm sure you've all heard, like unemployment is at an all-time low in Tennessee. They're having trouble finding people to fill roles in government positions in the administration. Um, so despite the myth that they take jobs, it's just really not true. Um, they actually help fill a lot of our, um, a lot of the, the jobs that we have available, um, particularly, obviously more skilled migrants in terms of science, technology. So for every 12 STEM jobs there are, there's only one person to fill that job. And so there's a real need to have um, more skilled um, individuals who can fill those roles. And we have a lot of um, immigrants 
and refugees here who um, either have those skills already or can be trained to have those skills. Um, and actually, interestingly, one of the bills that they introduced in the legislature a few years ago was about was debating the, the contributions of refugees and you know saying that they actually were actually spending more money on them. Um, and so they commissioned a fiscal report um, that looked at the contributions of refugees and actually that report, which was the own legislators fiscal review committee, found that they contribute 1.4 billion as opposed to cost, <coughs> costing 756 million. So the contributions that they make is a lot more than we're spending on them. Yeah. Um, so that's, I think, one aspect. The second as aspect is I think diversity just for me <coughs> represents really what the kingdom of God looks like. I don't think that the kingdom of God is homogenous, that there's going to be no race or ethnicity or culture. I think all of those things are part of the story. And so the more diverse we can be, I think, the more we reflect um, sort of the intent of all yeah. of this, of, you know, being here in this world and our um, coming into being. And so I think diversity brings a richness to our lives. Um, it brings excitement and adventure. Also, um, I love trying new foods and learning about different music and cultures. And so all of that, I think, makes us stronger and better. And also able to demonstrate hospitality because I think true hospitality is putting yourself in uncomfortable positions. It's always easy to welcome family or friends, but it's much harder to welcome people who have um, just different, yeah, different backgrounds and cultures yeah. and, and challenges and needs. And so I think being in that place of being uncomfortable um, when you encounter diversity or difference is a really good thing for our faith and for our communities mm -hmm. so if you're not already friends with Lisa on Facebook you should and this week has been a, as a uh, for obvious reasons a um, active week politically socially and so uh, I've been following her posts and and you know with Turk and folks like Lisa who who I would put in that group of on the ground I mean these these are people who know many people of color, people who are Muslim, people who are refugees or immigrants in our city. So she's very impacted by, by a week like this. And so um, talk candidly just about some of the ugly things that you've seen um, in communities, in real lives, some of the pressures that they're facing, even pre-election, it's not, like you said, it's nothing new. Uh, but but talk about some of those ugly things that are unfortunate. I think we need to hear about those. Yeah. So I think this year obviously has been very tough for our communities, and we have seen an uptick of people feeling emboldened to say, um, to, to harass or bully based on national origin or language people speak. So, for example, one of the restaurants on our food crawl that's owned by Iraqi refugees, um, Al Rizal Market, it's on Nolensville Road, absolutely delicious if you ever want to go there. They had someone walk in right before elections and say like something like, I can't wait for Donald Trump to be president because you're all going to have to leave, you know, something like that. Just walked into their place of business and said that. Um, our students, our undocumented students in school are being bullied by their classmates, you know, saying, can't wait for Trump to build a wall, or can't wait for you all to be deported. Um, we've even had reports of teachers in rural parts of Tennessee saying that to their students. Mm -hmm. um, my colleague, for example, who's Indian American, was driving around Franklin, 
and listening to his Hindi music and he, a group of teenagers pulled up beside him and honked. And so he naturally rolled down his window thinking, oh, they're gonna tell me my tire's flat. Instead they said, um, turn off that Muslim shit. Sorry, I'm cussing in church, but just to give you <laughs> real impact and go back to your country, right? That's what they said to him. My colleague who's Pakistani has start, stopped wearing her hijab because she feels so afraid. Um, yeah, so I think there's just been, I, ha I had a call from a woman in Shelbyville recently, lives in an all-white community, she's Hispanic. She had a knock on the door at 11 o'clock at night. She didn't answer. But the next morning she woke up and somebody had shoved a Donald Trump sign under her door. Um, she's a single mom, so obviously, you know, she feels very afraid. Like for us, maybe that's not a big deal, but for her, um, she feels very afraid. Um, so yeah, so we've had a lot of stories. We've had elected officials say horrible things um, comparing Hispanics to rats, for example. Um, yeah, grouping refugees as terrorists. So I, I had a really powerful conversation with a Somali woman who's a Muslim. Sorry, I'm talking too fast and getting out of breath. Um, and she was saying that this is the first time she's experienced sort of racial or religious profiling. She said someone called her a terrorist the other day, and she, her response to me was, how can they do that? They don't understand terrorism. They don't know terrorism. My brother was killed by a terrorist, you know, um, which is why she had fled Somalia is because of Al-Shabaab. Um, so yeah, so things like that that I think are really hard to hear and painful to hear. Yeah. You, you mentioned the dynamic of politicians feel a certain, um, you know, political advantage to to create or push or promote anti-refugee, anti-immigrant legislation. And it's very similar to what happened through the 80s and 90s with kind of the war on, on crime and, and sort of you had to one-up everybody. If you're going to get elected, you had to sort of make promises that you were going to be tougher than the last guy on crime. And I kind of feel like that the stage is set for that yeah. and that's what you've been dealing with. And you're uh, but so, so talk about that dynamic and what's, you know, are constituents really writing their legislators and saying, we want this? Or is it solely that, that dynamic that's kind of sort of propped its head up in this form? Or yeah. what, are, what are the legislators saying? They're definitely, people who are fearful are definitely more vocal than people who are welcoming. And so if you recall after... Um, the November attacks in France, there, you know, the governor said, I've received more calls about this than any other thing in my um, tenure. <clears throat> and it was mostly from, op from people who were afraid and who wanted him to do more. Um, and more recently, he changed his mind and said, Syrian refugees are welcome here. And again, he got a lot of backlash because people weren't calling to thank him um, for his comments. And so, I think they're definitely more vocal um, and they, yeah, I mean, there's no easy way to say this, but 65, 66% of our state voted for Donald Trump. Um, and I think a lot of, obviously you can't group everybody together, but I think a lot of what was driving them at the same time or a large part of them or whatever was um, sort of this fear that our country is being taken by Muslims or immigrants or refugees or whatever. Um, and the governor race is coming up. And so we've already seen a few people who are going to be running um, latch on to this yeah. um, because they think it's a winning strategy. Yeah. 
Um, so conversely, there's obviously uh, victories, there's, there's baby steps that you guys are, are, are fighting for and, and have achieved. And I'll say this, you know, one thing I, I appreciate about Lisa is as an organizer, as a champion, as an advocate, she has the ability to um, call things as they are. And, I, and you're probably sensing that already this morning, but she at the same time uh, has a determination and a positivity that I, I think any of us would appreciate about a, a champion or a policy advocate. Does that make sense? And so if you, if you look at her posts or if you follow her on social media, you'll, you'll see really quickly that she has the ability to you know, organize, but the sky isn't falling. It's very a determined, optimistic sort of thing. So uh, that's one thing I wanted to just compliment you on. I think anybody can appreciate that. But yeah, talk about some of the victories. Talk about some of the positive things that are happening because you guys are doing great work. You make a lot of progress. Thank you. Um, so let's see. I think Governor Haslam changing his mind about Syrian refugees was a huge victory for us because we were working really behind the scenes to try and um, educate him about the resettlement process, making sure that he was hearing facts um, and not misinformation. Um, and to his credit, he did do the work. He met with the people he needed to meet with. He consulted with the federal government. He um, had all kinds of private meetings behind the scenes um, to really educate himself. And to his credit, he made a decision based on facts, not fear. Um, but I think it was all of us who were sort of making that happen as well um, behind the scenes and writing him letters and um, giving him petitions. I met with his pastor, um, who also their church welcomes refugees. Um, so yeah, so that was a victory. Um, another victory, I don't think we've done it, but it's a victory in the community, is actually all of us immigrant and refugee serving organizations have experienced an outpouring of support. So people, you know, since Tuesday even, or after November um, Paris attacks, we and the, the anti-refugee backlash, We've had just an outpouring of do, uh, donations and people bringing us flowers to thank us for our work. Um, and as you've seen as well, I think some of the mosques in town have had like love notes and welcoming notes um, left on their sidewalk, which has been really nice. Um, and so I'm trying to think more locally, we've had victories in organizing immigrant and refugee communities. So for example, there was a development um, off Millensville Road in Edmondson Pike not a development, an apartment complex that housed a lot of Burmese refugees and they were about to all get evicted um, because they had redeveloped and rents were going up. Um, but they were having issues with like understanding what was going on because they didn't speak the language and they felt really um, hopeless and disempowered. And so we, with our organizers and with um, leaders in that community, we worked to organize them and to make demands of the developer. Um, and he, that developer met those demands and they were able to have more time to find alternative housing. They spoke before city council. Um, they wrote a letter and presented it to their city council representative. And just seeing the change in their faces and their composure when they realized they had power and that they were able to um, have a seat at the table was really amazing to watch them change from being hopeless and fearful to feeling empowered and like they had impact. Um, so yeah, I, but I do think honestly, most of the time we're on the defensive. There's yeah. not, there's, it's hard to get victories right now. Yeah. You, you, you've alluded to it several times, but I want you to give us a glimpse into the harder 
more controversial conversation of undocumented immigrants. And this class has dealt solely with refugees, and we've stressed over and over again that we're talking about a legal immigrant, and that's frankly a, a much easier conversation, all right, for Americans, for even for Christians. But you know, you're working with immigrants and refugees. This is a rights coalition for both groups, and, and it's a larger um, piece of the population. So give us a glimpse into that world, uh, understanding that we've, we've spent the whole class talking about it this way, but talk, talk about that world. So I think if you, I mean, throughout history, we've talked about refugees. The Bible talks about refugees. But actually, our, how we define a refugee now is a modern legal construct, right? It didn't really appear until the 1950s after World War II. And so when you're talking about a refugee today, you're really basing it on what we as humans and countries decided a refugee should be and the criteria that a refugee um, should meet in order to be considered that. But if you think about a lot of the reason why um, people leave their homes, um, I think there's a lot of commonality with the reasons why um, refugees leave their homes. And so for me, growing up in Latin America and experiencing personally violence, um, I understand why Hispanics and people in Latin America particularly take the risk of either crossing the border or overstaying their visas um, because there is no other alternative. It's either break the law or um, die. Um, and for my family, when we, if you don't know my family and our story, my sister was kidnapped and rescued in Guatemala. Um, and we were able to easily move back to the US. But the only thing that separates us from the millions of children fleeing violence is a blue passport. Um, I didn't earn that. The only person in my family who earned that is my mom because she had to take a test, pay a fee, go before a judge and swear allegiance um, to this country. But when you're born here, you do nothing to earn that. Um, it just is a privilege that's bestowed on you. Um, and so I have a lot of compassion and empathy for undocumented immigrants. I think they show a lot of bravery in taking those risks. Um, and I just work so closely with them now. Um, yesterday, wait, what day is today? Sunday? Friday, I was with um, a group of undocumented youth. Sorry, I'm getting really emotional. <laughs> um, who came to this country as children, and they feel so American. Um, this is the only home they've ever known and um, they can't fully participate in our communities because they um, don't have driver's license, they can't work, um, but they go to our schools, they graduate, they know more about Tennessee history than I do. Um, actually, funny story, we were meeting with a legislator about a bill that would impact undocumented youth, and I was there with them, and they were talking about a piece of art, it was a, like a piece of art of Tennessee, and the legislator asked them, like, do you know what the three stars mean? And I remember feeling like, oh my goodness, is this a trick question? Are they gonna be able to answer that? And then, and he was just asking, not as a threat or anything, and they sort of paused, and I was thinking, oh, they don't know the answer. I think they were thinking, why is he asking us such a stupid question? <laughs> but then they answered, and I realized, I don't even know the answer. I have no idea until they answered what the three stars mean, because I didn't grow up here. I didn't go to school here. Um, so that's just kind of to show how much they um, see themselves as Americans. Um, and so, yeah, so I have a lot of compassion and empathy. I also think that our foreign policies have led to a lot of the reasons why people flee their home country. Um, 
yeah, and just living in Latin America, I think I recognize that and see that. Um, and I think that as Christians, our job isn't really to ask whether they broke the law or not, but just to say these are people who are here and we have to love them and help them to more fully participate um, in our communities. Yeah. Are you, is Turk finding much success in mobilizing churches? And, and what's the message to churches? Yeah. What, what is, I'd love to hear the response, like are churches getting involved? Because of course, you know, we understand that um, many churches, many people in churches um, actually want to keep politics at a certain length, right? So with that cultural thing happening, you know, how hard is it to mobilize churches and what's that, what's that look yeah. like? So we haven't traditionally focused on mobilizing churches because we really believe that change comes from um, people who are directly affected themselves and we don't want to get distracted um, and put all of our resources into mobilizing allies, but rather mobilizing directly affected communities. Um, but more recently, I think we've realized that in the context that we're in, churches play a very big role in influencing our politics and our policies. Um, and so, and, and for me personally, I've really felt like we need to mobilize churches because um, it's what we should do as Christians and it's what our faith calls us to do. And I've been really struggling with, for example, trying to make sense of the fact that the same year that we you know, introduced legislation to make the Bible our state book, we also introduced a resolution to sue the federal government in order to end refugee resettlement. Um, and so I just, I really struggle with that um, and understanding how being sort of the buckle in the Bible belt, we have the reputation of being so unwelcoming and we are actually a testing ground for anti-refugee and anti-immigrant policies um, and legislation that's been introduced here has, um, we've seen copycat legislation across the country and that makes me really sad. Um, and so I think that there's a role for churches to get more involved, but it is hard. Um, I think churches feel much more comfortable <coughs> doing services, um, which is also important, but I think, I don't know, I think if you're truly facing or involved in working with people who are oppressed or marginalized, I think it should move you to help change the systems that do that. Um, and so I think services are great. I think we have a bigger role in, to play in dismantling systems of oppression. Yeah, that's good. So um, amidst a battle for, for civil rights, whether it's children in armed conflict or just human rights in general, um, or, or immigrants and refugees here in Tennessee. I'd love to hear just how your faith has been changed or deepened in a certain way. You've seen lots of things. You've come in contact with lots of people who are marginalized. And I'd just love to hear a little bit about how that's impacted you. Yeah, so, I mean, to be honest, this question makes me so uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and talking to my husband about it last night, I think for me, it raises more doubt than it does give you more faith. And, um, cause you just can't, you know, when you're around oppression or um, violence or poverty or whatever, and you just think, where's God and all of this. Um, but I think Ryan brought up a good point that he had heard from Richard Beck, which is that doubt is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. It forces you to be curious about the world. 
It forces you to look at the Bible in a different way, um, to really like wrestle with scripture and find different um, perspectives on it. Um, it forces you to be more hospitable because you're curious about other people when you have doubt, um, when you're searching for answers. Um, and so I don't know, I think after having that conversation with my husband last night, I feel better about having that doubt, I guess, like it's a strength instead of a weakness. Yeah. Um, I think people really amaze me, like their ability to overcome, um, not just survive, but overcome and be resilient. Mm. We always talk about refugees' resilience. Because um, I don't know if you've ever tried to put yourself in those shoes, but if you think about some of the situations that people flee, like. Honestly, I don't think I have the strength to survive that. I would probably find a way out, right, of, of this world. Um, but refugees somehow, I remember talking to a woman in Sierra Leone. Um, she was a victim of the war there and she was telling me about how she'd been repeatedly raped, um, gang raped with instruments. And I just remember thinking, why isn't she taking her own life? Yeah. It's okay. Remembering that story. Yeah. But she was strong. Yeah. Um, she was concerned about finding food for her children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that we've touched on time and again in this class is how do we uh, remove this conversation from the abstract? Because these are people. I mean, these are these are children and families and. And that's, that's the value that, that you bring today is just further solidifying or crystallizing that notion that this is not just some abstract political debate. This is, this is real people around the world created in the image of God. And I think that it's stories like that and people like you that are going to help raise our compassion because that's, that's one of our class goals is just let's stop thinking about this as some black and white political conversation that we're just this side or that side. This is, this is a heavily nuanced, emotional, human, um, cosmic discussion, I think, that we're involved in. So thank you. Um, last thing, and, and I think um, this comes from the campus minister in me. Jenny and I worked in campus ministry for 13 years, and we helped... Um, you know, maybe hundreds of students with the conversation of what I do with my life. Um, and it was always about pointing them towards how can you take the things that you're skilled at or passionate about or, or just the talents you've been given and sort of allow it to be immersed in your faith and how do you move forward in life and, and really go about your life and do the things that you like doing but, but somehow allow God to be the leader in that. And, and, and Lisa, I'm sure, would give so much credit to her wonderful parents. Um, and I know she's had lots of influences, but I'd love to hear in closing just how you've brought um, your vocation kind of uh, together with your faith. Yeah. And I think that's an admirable position. I know I've spent years thinking about that. Just how do you, how do you infuse those two and make sure that your vocation in some way or another is defined by your faith. So talk a little bit about that to us. Um, I think for me is I do the work that I do. Like I'm able to live out my faith through my work. Um, and 
I think it's by the work that I do, it's the closest that I feel to God, much more than being in church or, um, yeah, any other sort of normal way of experiencing God or more regular way. So being with the people that I'm with and learning from them and fighting for them is how I feel like I live out my faith um, or fighting with them. Um, yeah, and I just think that as Christians, we have a big role to play in dismantling systems of oppression. Um, I think sometimes Christians get too focused on heaven and sort of what comes next instead of trying to address people's real daily experiences. And I think that's something that I definitely learned from my parents when they were missionaries in Guatemala. It wasn't just about converting people or you know bringing people to Christ, but about addressing their medical, their physical needs um, first before you know before looking at their spiritual needs. And so I think I feel like government has a big role to play in um, protecting people. They can also have a big role to play in um, human rights violations and other things, but I think it's the system that we have, and so we need to learn how to work to make sure that system um, treats everybody equally and with dignity. Yeah. Well, uh, join me thank you, Lisa. In just a second, I'm going to have David share about a little, a, just an easy opportunity for you all this coming week. Um, but we want to continue to um, point you towards the end of the class, whatever form that ends up taking. But we want to involve more people in Nashville because, um, as I mentioned, our work with World Relief, um, and they're one of the federally approved agencies, right? These are the these are frontline people, one of three in Nashville, who are helping families get resettled and and go about that process, they're overwhelmed. I mean, they're just overwhelmed. Uh, Roger's family, uh, the, the team that they, or the family their team has adopted is from Syria, and they stayed in an extended stay for four weeks, five weeks? No, more like six. Six weeks or so, and, and their caseworkers were working to get their apartment ready, and so there was just so many things that these folks, uh, World Relief is struggling just to pull all the details together to get these families taken care of. Um, and so we want to pull alongside that organization. They need volunteers desperately here in Nashville. And so uh, this is one opportunity. It's small, but it's a great way for, if you're wondering this Thanksgiving, how you might get help or help uh, plug in, this is a great way. So at, uh, I believe it's the sometime next week, they'll be having a dinner for all refugee families that are coming in, and they are asking for, for every family that's coming in, they'll leave with a basket that's welcoming them to America. And it's it's not our traditional welcome meal, but it is a, um, it's for each basket, there's five pounds of wasabi rice, five pounds of angel health pasta, four pounds of sugar, salt, pepper, cumin, and vegetable oil, just in a basket. And, and they want each family to leave with that. Um, and I think of back when I was a kid, and we would get a new minister, we would have a pounding of where, you know, we would bring, you know, random things. And, and I think how welcome people would feel when you just are given something that you don't have to worry about buying that, that, that week. You know, that's, that's something that through this holiday season, that family doesn't have to worry about buying those staples. They can worry about something else. And so uh, we're gonna be taking collections this week um, by as late as Friday morning 
just bring it to the church office um, and we'll arrange the delivery to the World Relief offices. But um, you can go to their website, look at their Thanksgiving project and, and just kind of see. It's, it's a very small thing um, to do that will have a lasting impact of letting someone feel welcome as it goes back to the, uh, the project of hospitality. Yeah. Thank you. I'll send you all the links this week, but it's real simple. They give you the list of what to shop for. I think total it's about 30 bucks per basket is what they estimate if you buy all these items. So I'll send that link out. If you want to have your family shop for those things, it'd be a great project for your children or whoever. Um, and we'll, like I said, uh, bring it by Friday morning. If you'll just bring it to the church, we'll be sure that they get it at the dinner, which is this Saturday. Thank you all for being here. I'm sorry I kept you a little long. Have a good morning. Yeah.